This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Pain and Sedation Assessment and Management by Sue Hamilton Healthcare workers in all healthcare settings should always adhere to the latest World Health Organization guidelines on hand hygiene and barrier precautions before and after contact with a patient, bodily fluids, or patient surroundings. For more information, please watch our video entitled Hand Hygiene. Hi, my name is Sue Hamilton. I'm a nurse educator at Children's Hospital Boston, and I'm here today to talk to you about pediatric pain and sedation assessment and management. First, I want to talk to you a little bit about the whole idea of pain versus agitation uh, for the non-intubated or the intubated patient. I think that the overall wor word that we try to use is the word comfort, and comfort encompasses that the child will have adequate analgesia or pain relief as well as anxiolysis, that the child will not be agitated. The idea of some amnesia to the event is also potentially advantageous for the smaller child. We also want to be able to give care safely and giving sedation for a patient who is intubated and may pull out their tube is obviously very important as well, as well as it's important to try to facilitate sleep in the ICU as it's a 24-hour environment and children become easily sleep deprived. Non-pharmacological techniques. Pain assessment and management takes a full approach of medications and non-pharmacological techniques. A lot of times children are very comforted by their parents being with them and you don't necessarily always have to give medication to make a child comfortable. Some ideas of things that you could do is swaddling, especially the smaller infant. They usually like to have firm boundaries around them. If a baby can take a pacifier, if they usually do, you can give them a pacifier. With the older child, distraction works really well if you can uh, engage them in a in conversation about things that they like to do or give them um, some kind of uh, game to play or coloring or things like that. The older child is often amenable to things such as guided imagery that you can ask them to think of their favorite place that they like to go or be at and they can tell you a little bit about it and then you just kind of ask them to focus on that and very often that in and of itself will be relaxing to the older child or the adolescent. Pain assessment. When we talk about comfort it's always most important to start with pain assessment. A pain assessment should be done on every child in the ICU on a regular basis. Pain assessment should be first done when the child is admitted and you should try to get a pain history and how a child responds to pain and try to get from the parents what word the child may use for pain. In a smaller child they may have a specific word or a specific reaction to painful experiences they've had before. Pain assessment really needs to be objective because Different people see pain different ways and we all have different pain thresholds. So there are several tools out there that have been developed, that have been validated, that are excellent for assessing children's pain and we'll go over what some of those are in just a minute. 
So besides getting an admission assessment, it also needs to be done on an every four hour basis and any time that you have a child who's in pain and you react and give them medication, you need to be able to reassess them within one hour of giving a medicine. Any tool that you use in your approach to the child also needs to be developmentally appropriate because different age children will have a different response potentially to pain. A scale that you can use in the infant, full-term infant through about seven years of age is a FLAC scale. It's good for using with the intubated patient because you don't have to ask for a response from the patient. You assess the patient's behaviors related to pain and come up with a score that is from zero, meaning no pain, up to 10, which would be the worst pain possible. So if I were to assess this baby now, the first thing I would do is look at the baby's face. If the baby had no particular pain expression, I would score him a zero. And if he had just some grimacing, I would score him with a one. And if he really had a lot of chin quivering or making lots of facial expressions, I would give him a score of two. I'd also assess the baby's leg activity, whether the baby looks relaxed or does the baby have restlessness, uneasiness, or a lot of kicking or drawing um, of the legs up. What is the baby's overall activity would be the next thing that you would assess. Is the baby lying quietly, potentially either eyes open or eyes closed, or is the baby doing a lot of squirming and shifting in the bed, or is the baby actually very rigid or arching off the bed? Cry, you may not be able to assess the cry if the patient is intubated, but you can see from facial expression um, in tearing whether the baby is crying or if the baby appears to be moaning. And then consolability, can you calm this patient down? Um, if you, you know, assess the baby, rock the baby, swaddle the baby, use other non-pharmacologic techniques or a parent intervening, can you get the baby to calm back down? And the score of all five of those combined will give you the score of zero to 10 and give you a good idea of how comfortable your baby is. For a little bit older child, usually a preschooler to the early grammar school years, a FACES scale can be used with a child who is awake and interactive and has some verbal skills. Children are shown a succession of six faces with a happy face that starts out happy, which means that the child is happy because he has no pain at all, all the way up to a crying sad face, which would mean that the child was in such bad pain that he is very, very sad. Again, you would score the faces between a zero and a 10, and you would have some objective measure from the child as to how they're feeling at that time. There's also a numeric rating scale that can be used with the verbal child who is old enough to have some concept of the scoring of zero to 10, and I'm gonna show you how to do that with an actual patient. Hi, Hillary, my name is Sue. I'm gonna be taking care of you today. Nurse overnight said that you haven't been very comfortable. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me where it hurts? It hurts like on the right side of my stomach and it's really achy like all over and I feel really nauseous. Mm. Have, have you had any medicine recently? No. No? All right. Can you tell me, I don't know if you did this before, but on a scale of zero to ten, with zero being no pain, ten being the worst pain possible, could you rate what your pain is right now? Um, I'd say like around an eight. About an eight? eight? Yeah. All right. And you've been real nauseous. Have you thrown up at all? I've been really sick. I feel okay. really sick to my stomach. All right, so I'm going to give you a couple of different medicines, one to help the nausea and then one to help the pain, okay? Okay. I'll be right back with those. Okay. Hillary, I have the medicines here. I'm going to give you one for pain that's called morphine, and the other one is a medicine for your nausea. Okay. So I'm going to go ahead and give those to you, and hopefully in a few minutes, I'm just going to have them go in with your IV fluid. Hopefully in a few minutes, you'll start to feel better, okay? And I'll come back and double check with you 
how you feel after that. Okay. All right, I'm just gonna put the other medicine in. This might make you feel a little bit sleepy at first, especially since you're probably not used to it, mm -hmm. but that's okay. You do need to rest after having surgery, but if you feel too sleepy or if it makes you feel more sick, you need to let me know too, okay? All right, so those medicines are going in and I'll check back with you, okay? Hillary? Mm -hmm. Hi, it's Sue. Hi. How are you feeling? Much better. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Very sleepy. I'm really sleepy though. Yeah, that's sort of to be expected. How about the nausea? Oh, the, no, it's gone. Good. Can you tell me again on that scale of 0 to 10 where your pain is now? Um, probably about like a 3 or a 4. All right. All right. But it's still just sort of around your abdomen where you have the dressing? Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of achy. Okay. All right, good. So I think that that worked and we'll stick with that dose and in a little while, if you start to feel uncomfortable again, you need to let me know, okay? Okay. All right, take a nap. Okay. Assessment tools for developmentally delayed and chemically paralyzed patients. Assessing pain in the developmentally delayed child can be quite challenging. Behavioral responses may not be as predictable as a healthy child, and based on altered mobility and developmental abilities and the current condition that they're experiencing, the responses may not be, as I said, quite predictable. Nonverbal developmentally delayed children are dependent on others, such as healthcare providers and their parents, to help recognize if they are in pain, assess their source of the pain, and manage it on their behalf. Scales that are in use, such as the FLAC scale, may be used, but it may miss some of the unique expressions of pain of the developmentally delayed child. A different scale called the Individualized Numeric Rating Scale, or the INRS, is a tool that could be used in this population. The INRS is a numeric rating tool that facilitates parents' knowledge of their child's unique expression of their pain. The INRS has undergone initial validity and reliability testing. Now I'm going to show you how to use the tool with a parent or guardian of a child who's developmentally delayed. The tool uses a linear scale, such as a, similar to a fishbone, and we ask the parents to think about the, their child's um, past painful events and how their child has maybe reacted to when pain is mild, moderate, or severe. In the diagram, they write in their child's typical pain behaviors on the line that corresponds to the pain intensity, where zero would be no pain and 10 being the worst possible pain. Behaviors are the key to um, filling out this scale. So we ask the parents to think about their usual facial expressions, such as squinting or frowning or grinding their teeth. Also leg and general body movements, such as tensing up or becoming um, more difficult to turn or stiffening. Activity or social interaction, does their interaction with themselves or their environment change? Crying in vocalizations, from moaning to whimpering to yelling out. How consolable the child is. And then other things such as tears, sweating, holding their breath, or gasping. Here's an example of a INRS that was filled out by a parent on behalf of their developmentally delayed child. You can see when the child is in no pain, the child is playful and smiling up to the worst possible pain that the patient becomes very inconsolable and stiff.
This scale can be an invaluable tool for helping to assess the pain of a developmentally delayed child. Assessment of the chemically paralyzed patient can also be challenging. Because the child is unable to move or exhibit behaviors indicative of pain, assessing the child can't be done with the usual assessment tools or scales. Assessment is based on assuming whether pain is present or not present based on vital sign changes in clinical judgment. Generally, a 20% increase in vital signs is indicative of pain, as well as whether a painful stimulus is present or if the patient has a diagnosis in which pain is expected, then the nurse would make a clinical judgment whether to medicate the patient based on those two things. Sedation assessment. When you have a patient who's on a ventilator, it's very important, obviously, to try to keep the tube in the patient, and so it, to facilitate safety, it's very often necessary to give the patient some sedation. And in doing that, you then need to assess whether that is working or not. It's always most important to always assess if the child's in pain, but you also need to assess whether the sedation that you're giving is adequate as well. It's sometimes difficult, especially in the smaller child, to differentiate between what is pain and what is agitation. But again, if you take that mixed approach of trying to achieve comfort, you can sometimes use a combination of medications to achieve what you're trying to do, which is keep the patient comfortable and to facilitate the safety of the patient. So if you have a patient who is intubated and you need to facilitate sedation, the most likely route that you will use is a combination of a narcotic and a benzodiazepine. And as you give the patient those, you want to be able to assess how effective they've been. In other words, you want to assess the level of sedation. That is sometimes tricky to do, but there are tools that are available to help assess the level of sedation in a patient so that you can quickly intervene and keep the patient safe, which is utmost priority. One scale that is out there is called the State Behavioral Scale. It is a valid and reliable tool that can be used to assess the patient's um, level of sedation or what we call state behavior. It looks at different behaviors of the patient and you can assess on a scale of negative three to a positive two, basically what the patient's respiratory drive is, whether they're coughing against the tube, whether they're having a response to stimulation, if they can be attentive to you, how they're tolerating cares, whether they're consolable or whether there's a lot of movement going on. The SBS is assessed a minimum, just like pain, every four hours and before and after intervention. So if you have to give a patient extra sedation, you need to reassess the patient within one hour to make sure that the sedation that you gave is actually working for the patient. In order to do an SBS, what you want to do is observe the patient just in the state that they're in. As I said, this is a score of the patient's state behavior. So you want to look at the patient when quiet and see what the patient looks like. Then, if the patient is not awake, you want to apply a progressive stimulus to the patient and see how the patient responds. If you look at the scale that's attached, I can show you that the scale runs from negative three to positive two. Negative three would be a very deeply sedated patient who is completely unresponsive. In very rare instances would we want a patient to be a negative three with sedation on board. The goal is usually to have the patient either somewhat sleepy but arousable, or if the patient's about to have their tube taken out, you may want the patient to be somewhat awake, which would be a zero. 
once a patient gets extubated, you want the patient definitely to be a zero because you want them to be able to breathe adequately and not get sleepy and become apneic. So a negative three, as I said, is a completely unresponsive patient. A patient who's a negative two would be a patient who's only responsive to noxious stimuli. Some patients at certain times, especially if they have a very fragile airway, you might want to have that patient be at a negative two. A negative one would be the patient that if you called their name or you touched them or when you go to do cares may be stimulated a little bit but you're usually able to calm them back down without having to intervene. A zero would be the patient who's awake and alert and occasionally there are children, usually not in the toddler range but usually older children who may tolerate having a breathing tube in and being somewhat awake at some times during the day. Parents can be really helpful in facilitating a, a child being able to be somewhat awake when they have a breathing tube in. Then a plus one would be a patient who's somewhat agitated. Again, to facilitate safety, you necessarily wouldn't want the patient to be a positive one all the time. That would probably be a time that you would want to respond to the patient by giving them more medication or some other um, intervention to calm them down. And a positive two would be a patient who's very agitated, and again, you wouldn't want to have the patient in that state. Pharmacological approach. When a patient is intubated and you want to use medications to help keep the patient safe and comfortable, usually a combination of narcotics and benzodiazepines in synergy together work quite well. For narcotics, the most common drugs that may be used are morphine or fentanyl, depending on what you have most readily available to you. Whichever drug you use, you can use it as intermittent dosing, or you could potentially, if you have the resources, use the medications as continuous infusions so that you can keep the patient in a steady state of sedation. Morphine dosing is going to be lower in the neonate, and that would start at about 0.02 milligrams per kilo. In an older child, you may give up to 0.1 milligram per kilo, and you're going to assess the patient before and after each dose to know how the patient's response is. Morphine is usually given when intermittent every two to four hours. You need to think about children who have been exposed to these medications before. They may need to take higher doses of medication to get the same effect as a child who is opioid naive. You can also use fentanyl. Fentanyl dosing is generally one to two mics per kilo and given every hour. Its half-life is shorter, so you usually have to give it more often. Remember never to give it rapidly as it can cause chest wall rigidity and have the child not be able to take effective breaths. Benzodiazepines that can be used, some intermittently, some intermittently or continuous, are diazepam, midazolam, and lorazepam. Diazepam, the usual starting dose, is 0.04 milligrams per kilo per dose, upwards of 0.3 milligrams per kilo, and can be given every two to four hours. Diazepam would not be given as a continuous infusion. Midazolam can be used at 0.03 milligrams per kilo per dose, upwards of 0.1 milligram per dose, given every two to four hours. Midazolam can also be used as a continuous infusion, but always be careful when using midazolam in conjunction with other medications because it can cause the line to precipitate and you potentially could lose your IV access. Lorazepam is used in a dose of 0.02, upwards of 0.1 milligram per kilo per dose, and is given every four to eight hours. Again, you would not use lorazepam as a continuous infusion due to the preservatives in it can be um, harmful to the child. 
The pros and cons of each of these drugs are many, and it's really individual for each individual patient how they respond and react. And you might not get the right drug right out of the box, so you need to talk to the family and see if the child's had these medications before and what works best for this child, or if the child's never been exposed. It's very important to do a pre-assessment and again a post-assessment to see what the child's response to the medication is. When we're using these sedative medications, it is always with some worry that the child may get not enough medication or too much medication. If the patient does not get enough medication, they might become quite uncomfortable and they carry the risk of potentially bucking the ventilator and not breathing effectively, or they may also become uncomfortable and stressed. Excessive doses of medication may depress the patient's breathing when you may want them to be spontaneously breathing, potentially to be ready for extubation. It also may have the child end up staying on a ventilator longer than expected because the patient is too sleepy to be extubated. And always remember when you use these medications for an extended period of time, generally we think that somewhere over five days some drug dependence intolerance does um, start to exhibit itself and the child will need increasing doses of the medication to get the same effect that they got back a few days ago. Physical dependence and withdrawal. As I said previously, using narcotics and benzodiazepines aren't without risk of physical dependence developing. And it is thought that after about five days, the child will develop some physical dependence on the medication. And it's important not to withdraw these medications abruptly after a patient's been on them for more than five days, but definitely after about one week, because they will exhibit signs and symptoms of withdrawal from the medication. It's important to reassure parents that this is not the same thing as addiction, that the child doesn't psychologically need the drug, but that it is a physical symptom and that when the medications are drawn away slowly, that the child will not have a need for the medication once they're off completely. There is a scale that can be used to assess signs and symptoms of withdrawal so that people can look at withdrawal and see it objectively in any particular patient. And I'll show you that scale in a minute. But generally, signs of, and symptoms of withdrawal that can be seen are loose, watery stools, excessive yawning, sneezing, low-grade fever, excessive sweating, tremor, retching and vomiting, agitation, and easily startled. The scale that can be used is called a Watt 1, and it takes each of these behaviors that you can see and scores them on a scale of 0 to 12. Generally, when a patient reaches above a score of 4 to 5, the patient's having significant uh, signs and symptoms of withdrawal. Using a scale such as the Watt 1 is helpful for communicating with your team members as to signs that the patient is having that they may need to have their medication either weaned more slowly or have some of it replaced if it's been weaned potentially too quickly. Um, patients will respond well to a, potentially a single dose of medication or it may take several doses of medication, but if your patient's having any of those significant symptoms that I just spoke about, then it would be important to give the patient rescue medications until you have them at an increased level of comfort that is agreeable for both you and for the family and for the patient. This concludes our session on pediatric pain and sedation assessment and management in the critically ill child. I hope that you will take away some tools and some examples of ways that you can help manage your pediatric patient who may be intubated or not intubated, who's experiencing pain, 
or who is needing to be sedated to facilitate comfort when they're intubated. Thank you. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.